0: there's many more people here tonight, which my heart is breaking over, because of course this is a two-part discussion of dharma and love, which means that some of you were not here last week. So since there's so many of you and not to bore any of you who were here last week, I just want to get the rest of you up to speed here. My goal essentially was to create a bridge from the way we experience personal love in our everyday normal lives to loving wisely, which is a way of loving that allows us to be aware, to be kind, to be open, to be generous, and at the same time to be discriminating, respectful, and caring of ourselves and others. And this is the territory that we essentially trod last week. It was a very lively evening. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a great time with this material. What I essentially did last week was I walked this path of difficulty for Dharma practitioners, this path between what we experience as human beings, which is a very pointed, very directed, personal kind of love. And yet what the Dharma is pointing us at is a non-preferential, no preference, completely open, totally without any hesitation, offering of compassion and loving kindness to all beings. And yet we're human beings, so we experience personal love. And so I was courageous enough to honor personal love the way it is, and to say that often, frankly, many of us experience personal love as a very courageous act. That's surrendering to another human being, giving oneself over in this way, and yet we looked last week at how to do that with wisdom and compassion. Not only for the other person, but also for ourselves. So I told a couple of Dharma stories. One of the stories that I told was, um, all the stories were from the text, actually. One of them was about a lower caste girl who was at a well and Ananda, was the attendant of the Buddha, was on a mission for the Buddha, came to the well and asked her for a drink of water. And she immediately said, I am of low caste. Please don't ask me this. I will basically taint you if I offer you water. And Ananda said to her, I asked for water, not for caste. So he immediately saw who she was, and she got seen. In this very direct way, without any of the cultural obscurations, to her own beingness, her own precious humanness. And for her, this was such an awakening that she immediately fell in love with him upon sight, just from being seen in that way. Of course, she went off to the, she followed him back to the Buddha and she went to the Buddha and said, Oh, please, please let me. Let me take care of Ananda for the rest of his life. I love him intensely. And the Buddha just smiled at her and he said, you don't love Ananda, you love his kindness. So practice this kindness to all beings. So this was a way of showing to us how our minds can get very deluded around personal love. We can mistake love for all kinds of things. So we did a lot of journeying around that kind of delusion. The Buddha essentially had some instructions for how to give. Giving is a big part of love. And he had five instructions, giving faithfully, giving respectfully, giving at the right time, giving with a generous heart, and giving without denigration. So these are the five ways in which to offer your love to someone without any sense that there's going to be any harm toward them. Where we ended was essentially that desire is not the problem, it's never been the problem, it's clinging. And of course love does create a lot of clinging for us. It's just inherent in personal love. We cling to a particular person, we cling to particular things, We Cling to particular ideas, we get very lost in them, and we suffer because of that clinging. In a nutshell, that is what we did last week. And I invite you all, when, probably in another week or so, when these talks are up on the internet, I invite any of you who weren't here last week to go listen to that talk. So I'm going to begin with two quotes tonight. And together, these two quotes represent. The Bridge from Loving Wisely, which we discussed last week, to Boundless Love, which we're going to basically be swimming in tonight. So here's the first quote. This is from Sayadaw Pandita. He's a wonderful Theravadan teacher. If one is able to cultivate a mind filled with compassion and loving kindness, It is easy to live in a harmonious and wholesome way. Morality is based on consideration for the feelings of all beings, others as well as oneself. So this is where the bridge starts with the Brahma with this incredible commitment to cultivating compassion and loving kindness, and living in harmony with all beings. And of course, this is the basis for the kind of morality that we practice in the Buddhist teachings. And the other end of the bridge is best described by this quote, and this is from Anam Chukten, who is a very beautiful Tibetan Buddhist teacher in the Dzogchen tradition. We are talking about sacred as a true experience, an egoless experience. This sense of sacredness is simply utter love, love without discrimination, complete egoless love. This utter love goes beyond any form of attachment, We call it divine love. It is a very strange love, a love that we cannot compare with ordinary love. So that's the other side of the bridge, boundless love. And this boundless love may seem obtuse, it might seem abstract, and it may seem very non-ordinary. However, it is our essence, what we truly are when we directly experience love itself, knowing itself, devoid of all conceptualizations about itself. And I'm going to say that again, okay? Boundless love is our essence. What we truly are when we directly experience love itself, knowing itself, devoid of all conceptualizations about itself. True love. Unbounded, non-conceptual. So I'll offer you one more quote from Anam Tutin. We are made out of crazy love. The very basis of our consciousness is sacred perception, crazy love. When we know how to enter the realm of crazy love, true transcendence is realized right here. Even the I, who is trying to transcend dissolves in that crazy love. So, this is where we're going. How in the world do we get there? That's the question. The journey across this bridge requires bodhicitta. So, bodhi means awakened. It's a profound clarity that cuts through all obscurations to perceiving the entirety of reality as it is, empty of any inherent existence. So this is not self. Boundless love cannot exist in the realm of the self. It can't. It can only exist when emptiness is recognized directly. Now I know, I always come here and I talk about emptiness. I do this every time. But in this case, it's a critical part of the boundless aspect of boundless love. If we are not able to recognize the nature of the way things actually are, that there isn't Any single existing phenomena in this moment that is not completely and totally, utterly dependent upon every single other phenomena that's occurring in this moment for its own existence, there is no separation. We perceive an I and a you. We perceive an internal world and an external world. We do. It's true. We perceive it. It is not actual. It's our perception. It's a big magic show. And just to prove that it's a big magic show, um, I'm going to read you a quote from Michio Kaku. Some of you may know him. He is a wonderful physicist. And he writes fabulous books. He and Brian Green, I don't know how they do it, but they are able to write physics in a way that the rest of us can actually understand physics. (coughs) And he has a book, his latest book, it's not that new. It's called The Physics of the Future. I highly recommend it. It's really exciting. It's sort of in 2100, what's your life going to be like? And so he just goes through the way everything we know is going to change. Michio Kaku, K-A-K-U. So this is a quote from his book, just to prove to you that your perception is completely wrong, Okay. Since atoms are largely empty, we should be able to walk through walls. Between the nucleus at the center of the atom and the electron shells, there is only a vacuum. But if we are largely empty, then why can't we walk through walls? The answer resides in a curious quantum phenomenon, of course, the poly exclusion. States that no two electrons can exist in the same quantum state. Hence, when two nearly identical electrons get too close, they repel each other. This is the reason objects appear solid, which is an illusion. The reality is that matter is basically empty. I rest my case. (laughs) Seriously, this is a physicist. This is not the Buddha, but this is the teachings of the Buddha. The reason objects appear solid. You are not solid. You think you are, and you are not. It's an illusion. The reality is matter is basically empty. When we rest in this knowing that there is no separation between anything that exists in this moment. It is completely interdependently co arising. There is no self. There are no objects. It's just a lot of swirling energy that is continually shifting in every nano moment, essentially. There isn't even any continuance, even though it looks like there is. When we recognize this directly in our experience, we are awake. This is the Buddhist teachings. So, this is Bodhi. Now citta, the second part of the word bodhicitta, is most often translated as mind, especially in the Abhidharma, but in Buddhism there is no separation between mind and heart, so citta is often translated as heart as well. And I will tell you a very funny story, I think I've never told this in this sangha, but some of you may have heard it, if you've ever heard a lecture by Richie Davidson, he's Brilliant neuroscientist who's probably been at the forefront of studying meditation and meditation practices for like, 20, 30 years, something like this. Anyway, he tells this story in the early days. He and Cliff Saran took EEG machines to Dharamsala for the first time. I think this was in the early 90s. They took this EEG machine, you know, the thing that has the, the little helmet. It looks very strange. And the Dalai Lama was so excited about all of this, and he said, Richie, uh, what I want you to do is I want you to go to the college, and I want you to go to the student monks, and I want you to actually do this, hook somebody up and show them what meditation looks like on an EEG machine. So they go in, and Richie, being who he is, gives this beautiful explanation to these student monks. And he says, OK, we're going to just set this guy up. And they proceed to put this thing on the guy's head. And all the student monks start cracking up. They are just hysterical. So of course, Richie, being a Westerner, thinks, well, they think this thing looks funny. So they're cracking up. And he finishes and stands back. And they're still all laughing. And so finally, he looks at the Kempo. This is the Tibetan word for the professor in the room, the Geshi. He looks at the Geshe and he says, why are they all laughing? And through the translator, it comes back. Well, you're going to be testing compassion meditation, but they don't have any idea why you're putting this thing on their head. it is a totally strange place to put it, because in Tibetan Buddhism, the mind and the heart are here. It's not here. It's not in the brain. It's here. So they, were all, they couldn't figure out what he was going to test. So citta is mind-heart. So together, bodhicitta can be understood to be awakened mind or awakened heart, or as I prefer, awakened mind-heart. So practically speaking, bodhicitta is defined as waking to a cry in the darkness and responding to the best of our abilities that's bodhicitta. And to do this, to respond this way, we need compassion. As it says in the Sutra Lankara, compassion is bodhicitta's root. So we need to just talk a little bit more tonight about the Brahma Viharas, because of course we're creating a bridge, right? So we have metta, Which is loving kindness we have compassion karuna and equanimity and of course there is sympathetic joy but for our purposes tonight these three metta compassion and equanimity that they are the ones that allow us to really bridge the difference between a kind of wishing someone happiness and really working for their ultimate happiness so I just want to remind any of you who it's been a while since you've had any teachings on the Brahma Viharas. Um, the practice of metta is not a fake loving of everyone. We say the phrases, the metta phrases: May you be happy. May you be healthy. May you live with ease. May you be free from suffering. We can. Direct the phrases toward ourselves. We can direct it toward people we love, people we don't love so much, and then ultimately, all beings. But it's not fake. We're not just sitting there in some loving cloud. We're actively seeing the ultimate happiness of people, the human beings' ultimate capacity for happiness. It's a different way of paying attention to beings so that we recognize their intrinsic deserving of happiness. I actually heard Sharon Salzberg say this um, on a retreat last month, I thought it was a beautiful way of defining metta. And compassion is a very important thing to understand. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what compassion is, largely because people mistake it with empathy. And it's very interesting, recently there was a conference on the science of compassion. So a lot of neuroscientists who are actually studying compassion. It turns out there's such a thing, and I'm sure how many of you are clinicians and have heard the term compassion fatigue? Yeah. There's no such thing. There's empathy fatigue. It turns out in studies, in neuroscience studies, compassion actually You can't get fatigued with compassion. I'll tell you in a minute why. Empathy is the thing that causes fatigue. Because what empathy is, it's a non-sufficient condition for compassion to arise. It is true that being able to feel into the experience of another person, which is empathy, being able to resonate with somebody else's feeling, that's very important for really, truly recognizing that they are suffering. If you stay in that place of truly recognizing somebody's suffering, you are going to suffer. And that's what happens. That's what compassion fatigue actually is. It's people who sit in the suffering of others, hours on end, and have no tools to be able to recognize the nature of suffering as it actually is and to be able to liberate themselves from the delusion of what that suffering, the solidity of that suffering, and then fully on with compassion wish and work actively toward the freedom of suffering for that being. So compassion is coming forward and wanting to make a difference. (coughs) It's a quivering of the heart. It's not just recognizing how tough something is. It's, I want to do something about this. Yet we don't feel devastated or overwhelmed, unlike empathy, which frankly can be followed by any response, including collapsing, getting totally overwhelmed by someone's suffering, or even our own suffering, and collapsing. So this is very important. And there's one more distinction here Compassion is not the need to fix. That's clinging. That is clinging to the idea that something is actually wrong, inherently wrong. Inherently, nothing is wrong. Relatively, something is amiss. And if we have the capacity to offer our help, our assistance, that is what we do. But the whole idea that we can actually fix someone or change them, that's just foolhardy. We really don't have that capacity. People only have the capacity to change themselves. On the other hand, we can be terrific inspiration for people to change. We can offer all kinds of tools for people to grab and be able to change, including our political system, our world, all the things that need our energy for us to be actively engaged in making changes happen. I know I've been here, I've discussed this before, uh, I can't remember which, maybe it's real love. There is a Dharma talk I did here that's up on my website which talks about this point specifically. Finally, we have equanimity. Now, Equanimity is very important for this bridge from wise love to boundless love. Actually, equanimity is the core of sustained compassion, patience. And without it, loving-kindness falls into attached love. In order for us to continue to be compassionate, to act compassionately in the world, we have to have equanimity. And equanimity ultimately, at the ultimate level, it's not just about balance. It's actually about recognizing emptiness, the true nature of oneself, the true nature of all phenomena that arises, and knowing that truly, directly. That is really the way to cultivate equanimity. I have a great quote, another quote by Sayadaw Upandita to help you understand equanimity. And this is especially in terms of not-self and equanimity. He says, you can also gain equanimity about beings by reflecting on ultimate reality. When he says ultimate reality, he means emptiness. Perhaps you can tell yourself that, ultimately speaking, there is only mind and manner, and I'm sorry, mind and matter. Where is that person you are so wildly in love with? There is only name and form, nama rupa, mind and body, arising and passing away moment to moment. Which moment are you actually in love with? You may be able to drive some sense into your heart this way. I love that. So this is a very Theravadan view of emptiness. All phenomena break down into just moments of arising, residing, and passing away. There's nothing solid there. There's nothing you can point at that's that is permanent is going to continue forever. Nothing. So this is how we cultivate equanimity. One thing I wanted to offer all of you tonight because we are talking you know, in, in this realm of very it's a leap. this is all a big leap here. Sharon actually offered us equanimity phrases. Any of you actually heard the equanimity phrases? you've heard them they're very there are many different forms of equanimity phrases, but this is this is the particular group, and for those of you who practice loving-kindness meditation and practice compassion meditation phrases, you may be interested in these equanimity phrases. Hold on to your hats. This is really interesting. So The first phrase is all beings are owners of their karma. That's pretty big. That is a very compassionate statement, actually. That is the compassionate recognition that you don't have anything to do with it. And you may not be at the center of all bad things that people do to you. Their karma is at the center of it. The second phrase is, their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions. So this is a complete freeing yourself of any delusion about how ultimately you are responsible for somebody else's happiness. This is a great cultivating factor for equanimity. They are responsible, ultimately. And based on the first phrase, often it's their karma. And when we say karma, what I want you to hear in the West is I want you to hear propensity. You don't have to think of it as something that came from some past life. Just think of it as your personality's propensity. The default action, the default choices, the default when you go mindless, that's your karma showing up. When you, life hits, you know, the fan and you just lose it completely, and you find yourself doing things, that's your habit mind showing up, that's your karma. If their happiness and unhappiness is not dependent upon my wishes. Ow. When I heard that one, somehow for me the reality of what compassion actually is hit me. You know, because when I sit and I do compassion practice often I am doing compassion practice with a kind of, it's sort of a similar thing really in some ways to metta. It's like this well wishing. May you be free from pain and suffering. May your pain and suffering be eased. May you Recognize your pain and suffering. May you be at peace. That's a lot of wishing, you know, but actually, ultimately, my wishes really don't have anything to do with what shows up in another person's life, because they are the owners of their karma, and their happiness and unha- unhappiness depends upon their actions. So this is very clear thinking, very clear seeing, very direct, and and. This is equanimity, and we really need this for boundless compassion. There are two kinds of bodhicitta. There's actually relative bodhicitta, and there's absolute or ultimate bodhicitta. Relative bodhicitta is what we just discussed. Relative bodhicitta is basically a full-on embracing of the brahma the way we're taught the brahma practicing loving-kindness, practicing compassion, equanimity, sympathetic joy. However, Bodhicitta adds another little piece to it, which is, in fact, the bridge to boundless love. Bodhicitta requires that your viharas include the aspiration for all beings to realize their Buddha nature and taking action to accomplish this aspiration. That's a pretty tall order, huh? But that's the difference between practicing the Brahma Viharas and embracing bodhicitta. And this is actually called application bodhicitta. And it rests upon a serious commitment to our own awakening to our Buddha nature and using that as the springboard for the awakening of all other beings out of what. Anuttiputta likes to call primordial forgetfulness. I love that term, which is also in Sanskrit avidya, ignorance. And into vidya, which is primordial wisdom. And Anuttiputta actually says all of your suffering is an outcome of this simple forgetfulness. We could think of it as mindlessness, but it's actually more than that. Mindlessness is when you're just on automatic pilot and you're 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 gone. You're somewhere else and your body's acting and you're saying things and you're not really there. This is different. This is the primordial forgetfulness of being in a human body without an awakened mind and not knowing the nature of reality. Not knowing, not self. Thinking, you are a self. That's primordial forgetfulness and we are biologically engineered to have this primordial forgetfulness. So we must awaken. Absolute or ultimate bodhicitta is the realization of the awakened mind heart is utterly empty of any inherent i ness and limitlessly spontaneously responsiveness in its compassionate expression. So the mind and the heart fully awakened to not-self. And from that awakening, any action in the world is actually spontaneous and responsive and compassionate. That's how we are when we are awakened. So I actually have a real-life sort of mundane example of this from this past week. And some of you may have seen the video of it, or maybe you heard it on the news. An amazingly wise for her young years, wo- young woman named Megan Vogel. She's an Ohio teenager who actually runs track. On this particular day, she was running more than one race. So she actually earlier in the day had won Division Three 1600 race. And In the afternoon, she had decided to run the 3200 race. And unfortunately for her, although I'm sure she was fine because she won earlier, she was running last in the 3200 race. And up ahead of her, something happened. So I'm just going to say this in her own words. I was running, and I saw Arden, who was about 50 meters in front of me, fall down on the track. I really didn't think twice about it. I just knew I was going to pick her up and help her out. If you work to the point of getting to a state meet, you deserve to finish no matter who you are, and I was going to make that happen for her, no matter what. Okay, so now I'm going to say the definition again of ultimate bodhicitta. It's the realization of the awakened mind heart as utterly empty of any inherent I-ness. Do you think Megan Vogel was experiencing her i at that moment? No, she wasn't. She was seeing a teammate of hers, actually a competitor, not a teammate, a competitor of hers, someone she had seen in these meets for a number of years, ahead of her fall. And because she wasn't lost in the I-ness of, I have to get across that finish line. I have to win this race. She wasn't lost in that ego delusion. Because she was clearly seeing what was going on in front of her, she just spontaneously responded with compassion. She actually said, I didn't think about it twice. I just knew I was going to go pick her up and help her out. She deserved to finish no matter what. And I was going to make that happen for her no matter what. That's application bodhicitta. I was going to make that happen for her no matter what. Total sacrifice, complete open-heartedness, not even a thought. So if you think that everything I'm telling you is far away and it has nothing to do with your regular life, It's not true. It's right here. In a moment where you are not the most important thing. And something you see that you know you can do something about is right in front of you. And there you are. In it. Responding spontaneously. Completely compassionately. That's a bodhisattva. The thing about what the Buddhist teachings are asking us to do that's a little different than what Megan did. Megan, of course, has competed against this other young woman for a long time, so she knows her pretty well. So in fact, it's not ultimate bodhicitta, because ultimate bodhicitta would be that any one of us would respond that way to anyone else, no matter what was going on for them. We don't know them, or maybe they've harmed us, or whatever. It doesn't really matter. We're just there. Helping spontaneously. Yes? Does situation where yourself in Well, what do you think? guess yes. Why? Well, not Well, it depends what kind of danger. I'll give you a story that I told last week that might make this clear. When the Chinese came into Tibet, there was a period of years there where they were either killing monks in monasteries or they were imprisoning them. and Aji Rinpoche was one of the monks who was imprisoned in a Chinese labor camp for 15 years and actually there were a bunch of other monks there. He said while he was in that camp he really directly experienced the fear of his own mind and the fear he was talking about was the fear that he might actually not be able to hold his captors in his compassionate heart, that his mind might, because of its ignorance, have a moment where these people who ostensibly were harming him, and he's in a hard labor camp, that he would not be able to offer them this totally unbounded compassion in a moment where he was in danger and being harmed. The answer to your question is, there are many times when human beings just run into harm. They just run right into it, you know? Your kid's standing in the middle of the road and a car is coming. You know you're going to go run and grab your kid. That's running into harm, isn't it? Because you want to protect them. That is different than if you don't recognize the harm. You're not wisely recognizing, you're not discriminating between what is harmful and what is not harmful, and you're just going into harm. That, that, is not, that would not be in the Buddhist teachings. That would be unwise, it would not be skillful. This is not passive. You have to understand that. It's very active. And it includes justice, and it includes all of the things that we need in order to live a wise life. Does that make sense? Yes. I have really yes, please. That one. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking about this young man. Well, he's not that young. He's probably not twenty-five or thirty. Who doesn't have a car? And often when I'm driving home, mm-hmm. I see him hitchhiking. Yes. I don't know if you know the same kind of it. Anyway. And I often will not pick him up because I'm like, I'm really tired and I want to get home. And then I might go, well, I should have picked him up. But, you know. So it's this yes. process, I think, of being concerning. Let it's me say that whether or not giving him a ride is a compassionate act is also a question. Now, I don't know this young man, and I don't know his situation, and I don't know whether or not you know enough about this person to know that it wouldn't be a dangerous situation like this. So when you know that he's safe, what you're essentially doing is you are making a choice about who to be compassionate toward in that moment. Because you are a being who deserves your own compassion. If you're exhausted and you need to get home, then picking him up may not be wise in that moment, and you may be offering yourself your own compassion. We don't actually make a distinction between us and other beings because we are all beings deserving of our own compassion, and frankly, (coughs) a lot of the time, people are not actually offering compassion to themselves. What, What I want you to understand is that This is more what we talked about last week in terms of loving wisely. This is a relative experience and a relative decision. We're speaking ultimately. We're speaking about awakening the mind to end suffering completely. It's hard to wrap one's mind around what this state is like. I'm not a Buddha. But my sense is, if I was a Buddha, I wouldn't I would spontaneously the the decision to pick up or not pick up would be so spontaneous there would be no thinking about it that's the point I would just be responding So that's loving wisely yes that's this end of the bridge and you can't have that end of the bridge without this end of the bridge even though some people think you can So let me just let me just finish this I really want to make this a bit easier to digest here by just referring to the first three fetters, which some of you may or may not know. The fetters are these ten qualities that create ignorance essentially in the mind that the Buddha in the Theravadan tradition said that we really need to heal in order to awaken to our own Buddha nature. And the first three are the most important ones. The first is Sakaya Ditti, which actually is the belief In me and mine. It's sakaya means existing body and diti is view. So this is a view that I actually exist as a separate entity. And this has gotta go. As a matter of fact, it's really the habit of identifying with the I consciousness. And you know, this is a very strong habit in us. We we do this. This is this is the whole (coughs) illusion our brain spins for us so we can live in the world. It would be kind of hard to be answering your question if I was just perceiving you as the spinning electrons and pulsation of light (coughs) and photons and energy that you are. Yeah? So this is my body allows me to navigate this space in this way. And yet that is ignorance. Ajahn Smedo basically says, in terms of <coughs> Sakaya Ditti and your emotions, he says, have the will to feel, to be aware of what you're feeling, but don't grasp at the feelings. Feel without Sakaya Ditti. Feel without the big story about how your feelings are all you know, about you. Have them. Believe me, your feelings, emotions are quick. They come and go. They arise in the body, they're processed by the mind. Before you know it, they're gone. If you allow them to have their natural occurrence, if you hold the ego story about your anger, believe me, that anger will not just arise and pass away the the way it normally would. Emotions are self-liberating if you let them liberate. If you're not attached to the story about how you're angry, anger is here. Experiencing anger. I am angry is different than anger is here. Anger feels like this. That's different than I'm so angry. <coughs> That's taking birth in an emotion. The other one is recognizing emotion is here and emotion will go, as it always does. Something else will show up. That's the nature of phenomena. The second fetter is Michikicha, which, of course, is doubt or uncertainty. We talked a little bit about doubt last week. And it's especially doubt about the teachings. This teaching I'm giving you tonight is a very difficult teaching. It's stretching you into something that may be difficult to embrace. And yet, Michikicha, which is the doubt or uncertainty about not-self. Because you may not be experiencing not self the way direct full on not self is, how do you know it really is there? That will get in the way of your being able to fully commit to bodhicitta, to aspiring, to recognizing your own body nature, and working to awaken all beings to their buddha nature. And then finally, silabhata paramaso, which actually is attachment to contagion. I love this. Contagion. Contagion is so important, especially in love, because we discussed a lot last week about our cultural expectations around love. And this is contagion, the contagion of the intense clinging and the need to possess when it comes to love. So when we talk about boundless love, a love without clinging, a love without self-identification, a love that is universal, that has no boundaries, That really hits up against our cultural ideas about what love is supposed to be. I was going to recite the eight verses on transforming the mind, and I think I have enough time to recite it. There is a very important, specific reason why I'm going to recite these eight verses to you. Partly it's because when we talk about selflessness, as in not self, and we talk about compassionate behavior and compassionate action, we hit up against these cultural issues of pride, of um, holding ourselves in high regard. When you are practicing and you are really in ultimate bodhicitta, it is egoless, as Anam Tupton said. So there's no more boundary here. About holding yourself in high regard. These eight verses were written by Geshe Tangpa. He was a great bodhisattva. This was a man who was tireless, he, it didn't matter, he had students around him all the time offering teachings, offering teachings, offering teachings, tirelessly. And his greatest teaching was these eight verses on transforming the mind. And the Dalai Lama actually has a wonderful book on these verses called Transforming the Mind, if you wish them. But I warn you, these are tough. But this is what boundless love looks like. With a determination to achieve the highest aim for the benefit of all sentient beings, which surpasses even the wish-fulfilling gem, may I hold all beings dear at all times. Whenever I interact with someone, may I view myself as the lowest amongst all, and from the very depths of my heart, respectfully hold others as superior. In all my deeds may I probe into my mind And as soon as mental and emotional afflictions arise, as they endanger myself and others, may I strongly confront them and avert them. When I see beings of unpleasant character, oppressed by strong negativity and suffering, may I hold them dear, for they are rare to find. As if I have discovered a jewel treasure. When others, out of jealousy, treat me wrongly, with abuse, slander, and scorn, may I take upon myself the defeat and offer to others the victory. When someone I have helped Or in whom I have placed great hopes, mistreats me in extremely hurtful ways. May I regard them still as my precious teacher. In short, may I offer benefit and joy to all beings, both directly and indirectly. May I quietly take upon myself the hurts. And pains of all beings. And may all of this remain undefiled by the stains of the eight worldly concerns: gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and obscurity. And may I, recognizing all things as illusion, devoid of clinging, be released from bondage. That is truly showing up in any circumstance, even the most difficult of circumstances, with this commitment to awakening oneself and awakening others to their Buddha nature. So I'm going to end with one last quote from Thich Han, And this is, think of yourself as having arrived at the other side of the bridge. This is what it looks like. Nothing is born, nothing dies, nothing to hold on to, nothing to release. Samsara is Nirvana, there is nothing to attain. When we realize that afflictions are no other than enlightenment. We can ride the waves of birth and death and peace, traveling in the boat of compassion on the ocean of delusion, smiling the smile of non-fear. I thank you very, very much.